Okay, today we'll be looking at the book of Revelation. In particular, we're going to address this issue of the second coming of Christ. Now, before we jump into this, let me just say I, I believe one of the most exciting books in the Bible is this book. The full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It starts low, to be frank. It starts low, but as you read through the Revelation uh, of Jesus Christ, it builds to a glorious climax. And, and I, I want to get to that point to, today. But think about the low point of this here in Revelation chapter 1. The book begins with the Apostle John, the last of the apostles, by the way. Uh, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, a little teeny island in the Aegean Sea there to the, to the west of modern-day Turkey. The Roman authorities had banished him there because he was faithfully preaching the gospel. And while he was on this little island of Patmos, John received a series of visions, which we see here in the book of Revelation. These visions lay out the future history of the world. And I want us to look at a verse here that really helps us to understand this book, which sadly for many is very confusing. And by the way, if you're wondering why there's a lot of confusion on the book of Revelation, one, one of the reasons for that is, is there's various hermeneutics that people are approaching this book with. So if, you're, if your hermeneutic or way of interpreting Bible prophecy is, is not a literal, historical, grammatical approach, well then you're going to come up with all sorts of interpretations. But for the most part, those who who do have a literal, historical, grammatical approach, are going to fairly be consistent. And so I want to share some just some general guidelines in, in that way. But look at this, this one verse here in Revelation 1, verse 19, that really gives us the outline for the entire book. And so if you, if you don't understand this verse, then the whole book might be a little confusing. So let's look at this verse that helps us to understand the, the whole book. Revelation 1, verse 19 says, um, so here's what God says to John. He says, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So that single verse there is, is a very simple outline for the entire book. In fact, if you have a study Bible, some study Bibles use this as their three-point outline for the book of Revelation. So notice John says, uh, first of all, God says, we're going to see the things which you have seen. Now, there's a little, uh, there, there's the outline for you. So that, the, the first part there is coming from chapter 1 of Revelation. These are the, the, the vision that John has just seen about Jesus Christ. So when you read chapter 1, it's, it's predominantly about Jesus. It's an amazing chapter. I encourage you to read it. But then the, the second part is the things which are. That's referring to those letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So if you read chapters 2 and 3, that's the churches that were in existence during the Apostle John's day. But then the majority of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to 22 there is the things which will take place, the things, things to come things that hadn't happened yet in 
John's day. By the way, John's writing, majority of Christians would believe he's writing somewhere around the year 95 here. So these the things which take place are referring to future history, things that would take place after John's day. Now, sadly, probably no other book of the Bible, certainly no other book in the New Testament, poses more serious and difficult interpretive challenges than the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I've given you a little helpful, I don't know what you call this, a chart, diagram, timeline, whatever you want to call it, that, that I find helpful. It's, it's God's outline of history. And, and notice how it lines up with the book of Revelation here. And, and as, you, as you notice this, you, we've already talked about, the, as John said, the things which you have seen. That's Revelation chapter 1, that little arrow going up. The things which are, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the church age here. But then there's, there's we, we haven't uh, got to this point yet of the tribulation, Revelation 6 through 19. And then Messiah's kingdom, Revelation 20. And then the end, the last two chapters of the Bible talk about eternity. Talk about the capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem how God's going to destroy this present earth and universe, and He's going to make new heavens and the new earth. And so if, if you have a different hermeneutic, you can come, again, you come to different approaches, different views on the book of Revelation. So if you're not familiar with these, if you have a good study Bible, you can read about these, these four main interpretive approaches. So I'll just mention them, uh, and, then, and then I'll talk about the one which, which I hope you believe in. But, but here's the four main interpretive approaches. Number one, there's the preterist. Two, historicist. Three, idealist. And then there's four, the futurist approach. And so if you interpret the Bible literally, including the book of Revelation, you're going to insist that these events that we see here in chapters 6 through 22, are yet future events. They haven't happened yet. And those chapters literally and symbolically depict actual people and actual events that, that are yet to appear on the world scene. You might, some of you might be wondering, are there people who don't believe that? Yes, there are people, uh, godly people, who don't believe that, and that's why you get those other three Approaches, And if you're wondering about those, you can read about those yourself. But only this particular view, the futurist approach, the futurist view, does justice to Revelation's claim to be prophecy. Right, The whole atmosphere, the whole claim of the book is prophecy. And so it's the only view that does justice. And it's also the only one that interprets the book by the same literal, literal, grammatical, historical method as, as you would with the first three chapters, as well as the rest of Scripture. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure why that is, why some Christians would interpret the majority of their Bibles literally, but then they come to Bible prophecy, particularly the book of Revelation, and then they change their hermeneutic to, to, to an allegorical spiritualizing approach. I don't think that's wise. I think it's 
this book doesn't tell us we should do that. There's nothing here in the Bible anywhere that says we should do that. So why not just be consistent? That's, that's what I'm trying to hopefully, hopefully get you to believe, if you don't already. So if you, you see here in this, this beautiful outline of God's history, going all the way back to eternity past, and of course there's a little bit of debate on when was that. Well, roughly, I, I think it was roughly 4,000 B.C. And we see in the Old Testament God's dealing with particularly the nation of Israel, building up to the cross you see there, when Jesus died on the cross, he was crucified, dead, and, and buried. Of course, he, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And so Revelation 1 talks about the ascended Christ and how majestic he is and how powerful he is. And so that was, that's John. He's, he's writing about that in chapter 1, the, the things which you have seen. And then Chapters 2 and 3, all those seven churches, literal churches. And, and we're still in that church age, by the way. Uh, the rapture hasn't happened yet. We're, we're looking for that. We're listening for the trumpet, waiting for Jesus to come to rapture his church. And sometime after that, the Antichrist will make a peace covenant, peace treaty with Israel, which, as Daniel says, will start the seven-year tribulation. And so Revelation 6 all the way through 19 is talking about this seven-year period. And so we are now, uh, we're looking, we're going to be talking about that second coming when Christ comes back. Revelation chapter 19 talks about this. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at Messiah's kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. Revelation 20 talks about that thousand-year period. And we'll also talk about what is eternity going to be like. But before we get there, we need, we need to look at Christ's second coming. And I hope you see that if you interpret this literally, it all flows together. It's not that hard to understand if, you, if we interpret it literally and just see this as chronological events that are going to take place. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to Revelation chapter 19. There's so much we could talk about God's outline of history there, but we're going to look at just this part here of Christ's second coming. Now, before we do that, I want to just give you what I believe is the theme here. What, what is the point? Remember, the very beginning of the book says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him. So here, here's, I think, what the theme is, that God providentially rules over the kingdoms of men and will accomplish his sovereign purposes regardless of human or demonic opposition. So praise God, he is sovereign. He is accomplishing his purposes, and nothing is going to stop him. And we're going to see King Jesus come back here and when this happens, it's going to be glorious, and I hope you're ready for it. But in Revelation 19, there's a lot of praise and rejoicing and celebrating going on here. That is the, certainly the atmosphere. You've got a lot of good news because there's been heaps of bad news, lots of judgments, three series of seven uh, judgments, you know, the bowls, the trumpets, so forth. 
And so the praise in heaven is just reaching its climax. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because what we're going to see is God is going to be properly honored. Christ is enthroned. The earth is going to be restored to its lost glory. Heaven's rejoicing because history is finally going to reach its culmination as King Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. And so this time is known as the second coming of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 1. Because verse 1, we see the angelic chorus is singing. Oh, wouldn't you love to hear that? I would. What are they singing? Well, look at verse 1. Revelation 19.1 says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We'll just stop there for a moment before we read the whole chapter, but what I wanted you to notice, what are they singing? They're singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Not the one that Handel wrote, but hallelujah. And, well, let's make sure we understand what that means. As you've probably heard me say before, hallel means praise. That last part, yah, is short for God, which comes from Yahweh, which comes from, sorry, comes from Jehovah, which comes from Yahweh, God's name of the Old Testament. So they, in, in other words, in short, what are they singing? They're praising God And so as we go through this book, we want to find out what are they celebrating? What are they rejoicing over? Why are they praising God? And by the way, the things that heaven rejoices over should be the things you and I also rejoice over. These are the things you and I should be celebrating. Okay? So we want to take note of why is there celebration in heaven? Well, let's read Revelation 19. Verse 1 says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We'll stop there for the moment. So notice we're answering this first question here in verses 1 through 10. Why is there this celebration going on in heaven? Why are they rejoicing? Why are they singing hallelujah, praise the Lord? Well, this text gives us at least five reasons why heaven is rejoicing. Number one, heaven's rejoicing because God is glorified because full salvation has come. That's what verse 1 is is telling us, that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So heaven's rejoicing because this salvation has come for God's people. And the glory and the power that belong to God have now been put on display. By the way, the word salvation there is not referring to justification. It's not referring to that, uh, you know, when, when someone is converted, regenerated. But what it's doing here is it's celebrating the final aspect of salvation, which we often call glorification. The glorification of the saints in Christ's kingdom. So God is being glorified here because full salvation has come. See, you and I are not yet glorified. We haven't seen Jesus. We haven't been made exactly like He is. But that day is coming. And when it does, heaven will rejoice. Number two, why is there celebration in heaven? Well, because justice is finally provided. Finally provided. Because notice it talks about His judgments are true and just. He's judged this great prostitute. Who's that? By the way, you've got to read the previous chapters. That great prostitute was the, the one world church, religion. The Antichrist will, will set up. It's, it's called a prostitute, a whore. It's prostituted itself against God. But finally, justice is going to be provided. Heaven's rejoicing here. Notice that it's because God's judgments are true and righteous. The righteous judge will do what's right. And by the way, how is that evidenced? It's evidenced by the destruction of wicked Babylon, which is, again, mentioned in the previous chapter. So Babylon is identified as the Antichrist system there that's seducing the unbelieving world to believe Satan's lies. So behind that is Satan. He's, he's the dragon, by the way. The Bible says so in Revelation, that the dragon is the one who is empowering the Antichrist. So heaven's rejoicing because justice is provided. And number three, heaven is celebrating here because rebellion is ended. Finally, it's ended. So they're, they're, they're crying hallelujah because the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The judgment of God has come. The Bible says this, the smoke is, notice, it's rising up forever and ever. It's indicating this, in other words, that this judgment is final. It's 
irreversible. It's done. So the destruction of the last and this most powerful empire that Daniel talks about in chapter, Daniel chapter 2 and 7, is, it's marking the end of the, this human rule. The rebellion that began there in the Garden of Eden is finally ended, except for one small rebellion that takes place in Revelation chapter 20. We'll, we'll get to that later on some other week, but in Revelation 20, Satan is going to be released from the pit, the bottomless pit, and he's going to lead a rebellion against Jesus Christ. And of course, that's going to be squashed and crushed. And so we praise God there's going to be no more false religions, no more injustice, because rebellion is ended. Number four, why is there celebration in heaven? Because God is in control. God is in control. This, these verses here is talking about the 24 elders and so forth. In those verses, we see the hallelujahs praising God ringing out from the residence of heaven. Those 24 elders are, as far as I understand, probably representatives of the church. The four living creatures are probably a type of angel, probably cherubim angels, uh, which is the highest rank of angel. And so what are they doing together? Notice what are they doing? They're, they're all doing the same thing. They're praising God. They're showing their agreement with God's judgment on Babylon. Notice the text has a voice calling all the believers in heaven to praise God. And as a result of this praise to God, what does John do? John describes this sound like the sound of many waters. You ever been to a waterfall? I, I, I can imagine that's the sound of many waters. Uh, the, the only thing that comes to my mind is a, is a large waterfall. If you've ever been, whatever largest waterfall you can think of, you've been to, that's the imagery we have here. I've been to Niagara Falls. And Niagara Falls is, is amazing. The sound is incredible. Where even, even way over in the car park, it just feels like the whole ground is shaking from the power of the water. The sound is just reverberating everywhere. And that's, that's what John is feeling here. It is, the sound is like many waters. This massive choir is just is, is so loud, it's just shaking. It even feels like going through your own bones in your body. That's how big the celebration is that's taking place in heaven. So why is heaven celebrating? Number five, the marriage of the Lamb has come. Finally, King Jesus, the groom, is married to his bride. His bride has been made ready. And that's verses 7 through 10. Talk about that. So verse 7 says, Hey, let us rejoice and exult and give glory to Him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It's a beautiful picture. And so to understand this passage, it's, it's really helpful for us to understand a marriage was the single greatest celebration and social event of biblical world. 
So wedding preparations and the celebrations uh, were very elaborate. They involved a lot of people, many days, a lot of work. They consisted of three stages in a, in a biblical wedding. And so it's helpful for us to understand this. So, so three stages. First, there was the betrothal or engagement stage. This was an arrangement that was made by both sets of the parents. The second stage was the presentation stage. It was a time of festivities that would take place before the actual ceremony or the actual wedding ceremony. Those festivities could last up to a week long, sometimes more, depending on the social and economic status of the bride and the groom, particularly the parents. So it depends on how much, in other words, how much money did you have, right? Would depend on how long and big that celebration would last. The third stage is the actual ceremony during which the vows were exchanged, where, you know, they'd say, I do, and I will, I will do this, and I won't do this, and you know, so forth, right? And, and at the end of that presentation, the groom and, his, and the attendants would go to the bride's house and take her and, and the bridemaids to the ceremony. And, and after the ceremony, they'd come this final meal, which would be followed by the consummation of the marriage. So that's what took place in Bible times. And so it, it's really helpful for us to understand that is we need to bring Bible into the present here, into this book to help us understand the marriage of the Lamb. And so in this particular scene, the entire heavenly chorus is praising God because all the preparation is now complete. The marriage of Christ has finally come. Now, when did the betrothal stage take place? That took place in eternity past. In eternity past, God the Father said, this is going to happen. <laughs> and presented, it will be betrothed in eternity past by the Father, now presented in the Father's house. And the church is now ready for the weary, wedding ceremony to begin. We're waiting for that. And it's going to overlap with the start of the millennial kingdom. It's going to stretch out through that thousand-year period. And finally consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, the bride concept will then be expanded to not just include the church, but it's, it's including all the redeemed of all the ages. Old Testament, church age, tribulation, so forth. So notice there's some guests at this wedding. Who are these guests who've been invited to the marriage supper? The marriage supper, remember, takes place after the wedding. Well, they're distinct from the church. Of course, a bride's not invited to her own wedding. That's kind of silly. But these guests are representing the Old Testament believers. And some people would ask, well, why are church-age believers granted this particular honor of being a bride? Well, the answer is, it's because God sovereignly purposed that it would be this way. He has the right to do so. And in the end, by the way, there's not going to be any second-class citizens in God's kingdom. 
all believers going to enjoy all the full glories of eternity. There's not second-class citizens in heaven. So heaven's celebrating here because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And as believers in the church age, we hopefully are looking forward to that. Just as heaven is celebrating this, so should we. But there's some things here, starting in verse 11, that talk about what, what, what happens on earth when the King Jesus returns. So let's read, starting in Revelation 19, verse 11. John's writing about this, this vision that God's giving to him, and it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. and He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. (laughs) There's a lot going on here, isn't there? Let me just bring out a few highlights. Number one, what's happening here when King Jesus returns at his second coming? Well, the Bible mentions, first of all, King Jesus is the one who's going to appear. Notice, where is he coming from? He, he's going to come from heaven. He's coming from heaven. By the way, the, some people get this event confused with the rapture. This is not the rapture. And there's many reasons why we know this is not the rapture. Because it's different from the rapture passages and how it describes the raptures. For example, at the rapture, according to John 14, verse 3, Christ comes for his saints. Here, Christ comes with the saints. They're behind him. At the rapture, Christ meets his saints in the air and takes them to heaven. 
1 Thessalonians 4 says. But what's going on here? Christ's second coming, He is descending with the saints from heaven to the earth. Totally different event. Those are just some of the reasons. If you compare rapture passages with the second coming of Christ, you see they're very different. So He's coming from heaven. He's coming with the saints. Notice He's riding a white horse. You love horses, you're going to love this passage. Now, this this horse, by the way, was traditionally ridden by victorious Roman generals as they would ride back into the city of Rome. Of course, they would only do that if they were victorious. It would be their triumphal procession going through the streets of Rome, celebrating great victories. White, by the way, also symbolized the absolute character holy character of the rider. Well, who's riding the white horse? Jesus is. The perfect one, the holy one of God is riding this white horse representing His holy character. What is He called? Well, the text says He is called faithful and true. And that's appropriate, isn't it? If you think about King Jesus, He is the one who is faithful and true. Well, how how do we see that lived out even in this very text? Well, He's judging. He's making war. He is the faithful and righteous judge. By the way, take note, He is the executioner here. He is judge, jury, and executioner of the ungodly. Next, I want you to see that King Jesus looks amazing. I, I don't know how to describe him. <laughs> Words just don't do justice, do they? You've got to feel for the Apostle John. He, he has to keep saying Jesus is like this. Just, he's indescribable. Because he says in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. By the way, notice... Jesus' eyes are not literally fire, because John says they're like fire. What's the point of that? The point I I believe John's trying to make here is that Jesus' vision is inescapable. Nothing can escape His notice. Therefore, His judgments, that's why His judgments are always just. They're faithful and accurate, because He can see even inside people. Nothing escapes His notice. So when He comes to make war and comes to judge the ungodly, they will get what they deserve. Notice verse 12 also says He's wearing ruler's crowns. Multiple, and the ESV says, diadems. Diadem is a crown. And notice there's multiple crowns being worn by King Jesus. And that's just showing that he is, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one with ultimate authority. Notice in verse 13, his robe is dipped in blood. It's a picture of judgment. The blood is from Christ's slaughtered enemies. And some have asked, well, why are his garments here splattered with blood even before the battle has begun? He hasn't even got to earth yet and destroyed the ungodly. Well, we need to remember, this isn't the first battle that King Jesus has fought. 
but it will be the last. His war clothes are bearing the stains of many battles. He's already fought against sin, Satan, and he's conquered death. And at this, this day, his clothes are going to be stained as if he is, notice verse 15, as if he has been treading grapes in a wine press. Imagine wearing a, a long robe and walking on grapes, squishing the grapes, and they're splattering up on your clothes. That's the imagery that the Bible is giving us here. What's his title according to verse 13? Verse 13 he's got many titles that's mentioned. One of them is, He is the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Because the Apostle John in his Gospel, in the very first chapter said, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's called the Word of God. He's also called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, according to verse 16. So you just kind of combine all these ideas together. What, what's, the, what's John trying to say? They're clearly identifying Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just man, but He is deity. He is the God-man. The one who is worthy to come to bring these judgments Third, we see that King Jesus is going to bring His people with Him, according to verse 14. He's not going to leave them behind. His people come with Him. Because verse 14 talks about the armies of heaven. Who who are these armies of heaven? Well, they're composed of the church and the tribulation saints, as well as the Old Testament believers, and even angels, it, it seems, if you read this. And notice how they're dressed. The Bible even describes how they're dressed. They're dressed in fine linen. In other words, expensive clothing. Not the rough stuff that would itch you. <laughs> okay? but no, this is fine linen that is white and pure. The idea is this, this represents, of course, if you read the text that these armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. The idea is this, how is this made possible? It's because of the righteousness of Christ. The, the army is going to follow Jesus on white horses. Won't that be fun? <laughs> Think about that. Even if you don't like riding horses, you're, you're going to love this. And the other thing to take note of here is that the... Saints are unarmed. Why are they unarmed? They don't need weapons. Because when the saints return with King Jesus, they don't need to fight. King Jesus is the one doing the fighting. But when we do come back, according to chapter 20, we will reign with Christ. We will be, in other words, we'll be given responsibility. We will rule and reign with King Jesus. King Jesus is the one doing the fighting, and that's what we see in these next verses, because we see that King Jesus is going to avenge his enemies, according to verse 15. Because look what's coming out of his mouth. From his mouth is coming this sharp sword, which he's going to strike down the nations. Again, notice it's, this isn't a literal sword that's coming out of his mouth, but John's trying to describe the power of King Jesus, his 
His words, in other words, from Christ's mouth are going to come words of death for the unbelievers. The sword symbolizes Christ's power to kill His enemies. How? Well, He's going to win here by the, the power of His word. Just like King Jesus brought the whole universe into existence by speaking it. When He said, let there be light, there was light. Well, He can take it out of existence just by speaking the words. Christ's judgment here is described, again, notice, like a wine press. Grapes put in some sort of a vat being crushed. And so the enemies are going to be crushed just like grapes crushed underneath the foot of a human being. And Christ is going to rule His kingdom. Notice it says, with a rod of iron. In other words, what's that going to look like? It's, he's going to put down any rebellion. It's going to be put down swiftly and just, justly. Remember, nothing escapes his vision because his eyes are like a flame of fire. He knows all, unlike our present governments <laughs> around the world. Much does escape their government or their eyes, their eyesight, but not with King Jesus. He's going to rule his kingdom with a rod of iron. And then God sends his angel here to invite the birds to come and to eat from the slaughter. Verse 17 says, Come, gather for the great supper of God. One of the things I want you to notice according to verse 18, notice 18 says this in several different ways, that this slaughter is going to be all-inclusive. It's the small and the great. It's the slave and the free. In other words, it's, it's the generals as well as the, the privates. Nobody's going to escape. And so to have, we need to understand something the way the Jews thought here. To have somebody's body unburied and, and left exposed for the birds to eat was considered one of the, the greatest of indignities. They wanted to be buried. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to be exposed to birds picking at the, their flesh until there was only bones left. And so God's saying, this, this is the fate that awaits God-hating rebels. And we see that Jesus is going to defeat the Antichrist as well as his army. Verse 21 is pretty clear that uh, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Jesus Christ. He was sitting on the horse here, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So these verses are depicting this frightening holocaust that surely cannot be paralleled in any way in human history. This has to be the greatest climax of all battle campaigns. We often call this the Battle of Armageddon, but think about this, my friends. Is this really a contest? I would say not. Based on what the Bible says, this is not a battle. This is an absolute slaughter. It's a one-sided affair, isn't it? The King of kings and Lord of lords only has to speak out of existence his enemies. So it's going to be an absolute execution. It will be a dominant slaughter. And then we see in verse 20 that 
King Jesus is going to transform the bodies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verse 20 mentions the beast. Well, who is the beast? If you read in previous chapters, you'll know the beast is the Antichrist. He has a false prophet who does many signs and wonders, deceiving people. And so when Jesus returns, he's going to transform their bodies so that they are able to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. And that's where King Jesus will banish them forever. It's their final hell, the place of eternal punishment for all unrepentant rebels. It doesn't matter if those unrepentant rebels are angels or human. This is their final place. So therefore, the lake of fire is going to be the ultimate destination for Satan, the demons, and unbelievers like the Antichrist and the false prophet. Because verse 20 is pretty clear. It says the the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is not good news if you're an unrepentant rebel. But remember, why did God make hell? The Bible says it was created for Satan and the demons. None of us have to go there, but that's where all unrepentant rebels will end up. For those who refuse to put their faith in the King of kings and the Lord of lords and in His perfect sacrifice for their sin, this is the ultimate destination. And there is no second chance. So my friends, let me just end with this proposition for you to think about. That God wants you to believe that He rules over the kingdoms of men. He wants you to believe He's going to accomplish His sovereign purposes, regardless of human or demonic opposition. So my friends, may this truth bring you great hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us hope. Encourage us. Cause our hearts to trust in You, to believe in You and what You have said. May we believe that Jesus is the Word of God, that He is faithful and true and just, just as He has been described here. May we believe that He is coming again. And when He comes, His judgment comes with Him. May we know this truth. May we share this truth with others so that they would not receive this judgment from King Jesus. We pray that you would help us to understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we know that we are in Christ Jesus. Give us this assurance. And if we are not in Christ Jesus, do not give us assurance until... This is a reality. So may my friends examine themselves to see if they really are in the faith. Encourage us by these glorious scenes and visions that you gave to the Apostle John. May we remember that all Scripture is profitable. May we understand how this is profitable even for us. These things that haven't happened yet 
but may we believe they will one day. May we look for King Jesus to return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.